Danny Burt is a world adaptive surfing champion, doctor of physical therapy, and above knee amputee. In 2004, Danny was in a motorcycle crash that put her in a coma for 45 days. She woke up completely hopeless and even suicidal. Today, we talk about her origin story and life up until that moment, what she experienced while she was in that coma, and how she was able to convert her anger and depression into positive growth and why she's devoted the rest of her life towards helping others to find the same level of empowerment. This opportunity to hear Danny's remarkable story was made possible by Rain Optics and Eyewear. Uh, much like Danny herself, Rain is based in San Diego, and I'm proud not only to wear Rain Eyewear, but to partner with them. Two surf industry brothers founded the company, Justin and Jeremy Height. So many of the surf brand eyewear that was available in my youth was just kind of a category extension of a clothing or a board short brand. The Height Brothers, however, founded Rain in 2001 with the goal of fashion and design focused eyewear, born from the surf world that utilized the highest quality materials and hand cut and assembled manufacturing. You've seen their eyewear on Alex Nost, Tia Bianco, Cassia Mador, and Josie Prendergast, just to name a few and you can save 20% off any purchase on rain.com by using our promo code podcast. You'll support our work here, you'll look good doing it, and you'll have the frames for a really long time. They're actually really well made. So rain is spelled R-A-E-N, and you'll have to apply our promo code to let them know that you heard about them here. So that word, that code is the word podcast, saves you 20% at checkout and supports our work. So enjoy that. Thank you. Grab a pair or two for yourselves, gift a pair, and uh, thanks in advance. So without further ado, Danny Burt. In 2016, she was crowned U.S. Adaptive Surfing Champ. This was before they had a women's division, so she beat male and female competitors that year. The next year, she took the first women's adaptive surfing champ title. She's one of the first people to design a surf-specific prosthetic leg. She spearheaded the advocacy for gender quality at the ISA, and by the way, has succeeded in having them amend rules and regulations to exclude discrimination based on gender. This, of course, is all in addition to her full-time work as a physical therapist and her philanthropy, all of which she details through our chat. So, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and it's my pleasure to share with you my conversation with Danny Burke. Enjoy. I first reached out just before COVID was hitting, and obviously you work in a hospital environment, so I would imagine, I mean, your life has to have been completely upended by COVID, right? Yeah, there was a, a lot of unknowns and it was constantly changing. So in that situation, since I work inpatient in the hospital, um, wasn't such a good idea to meet in person, uh, but I'm glad we can do it this way for sure. I mean, this works for us, but how did, um, how did your life and your work change due to COVID? Were you working through the whole time? Yeah, and I'm still working. I'm uh, very uh, privileged and lucky to still have a job. 
Um, so in the beginning, uh, I mean, I was uh, rather stressed and uh, anxious because seeing something like this happening, it's like, uh, since I'm so, I've been working in the hospital for five years, it was such an unknown bad situation. And we could see that from the beginning. Um, so everything changed in our hospital, like units transformed, no family, no visitors, no volunteers, no students. Uh, a lot of things changed. Everybody's in a mask all day long, no matter what. Um, but yeah, I have amazing coworkers and an amazing boss. So they all really had my back and I had theirs. So it, it's been, it's been a good, uh, fortunately smooth experience. Did you, uh, what level of threat did you feel for your own personal wellness working in that environment? Well, in the beginning, so obviously I've had my motorcycle crash and I'm immunocompromised. I don't have a spleen. Uh, so I have to have flu vaccine every year. I have to have the pneumonia vaccine. There's no vaccine for this, no treatment. So I'm like, Ah, great. <laughs> like, I'm definitely not in a good position. But again, fortunately, my hospital was pretty on top of it. And even though we had issues with PPE, uh, we eventually figured it out. And I was able to wear a mask um, the whole time, even when things were very unknown at the time. Considering your kind of frontline experience, um, how do you feel about people, either friends or maybe just on the internet, who aren't taking it so seriously? It's very disturbing and disappointing because like we see this, I see this all the time, all week long with patients that have COVID or uh, just what's going on with the hospitals in general and how easily we could be um, overwhelmed. And, uh, it's just people, people thinking mask is a political statement instead of something that's backed by science. And even if you want to take out science, even though you should never take out science, it's just compassion and empathy for everybody around you. Uh, so to see the lack of that, uh, it, it is definitely disturbing to me. Yeah, I think some of it comes from the fact that they just haven't witnessed any of the horror of the mm -hmm. virus. You know, maybe they haven't seen anybody who's been um, infected or certainly haven't seen anybody who's died. And so that's why it's easy to just kind of think that it's not as serious as it is. But Yeah, I guess I, I mean, I could see that to a point, but then it's like seeing what's happening to... Uh, our economy and uh, to people that haven't contracted COVID uh, that are out of jobs. Like it's, it's no joke. It's like, if we want that to stop, uh, we have to be responsible and uh, empathetic to everybody. Cause uh, to take a, such a, a stance of privilege and say, I'm just not going to wear a mask. It's just mind boggling to me. Mind boggling. Yeah. Because yeah. we wear it all day long. Totally. It's, you know, it's not, it's not the best situation, but it's not a big deal. You get, you get <laughs> totally. used to it. Yeah, totally. Totally. 
Um, I'd be curious to hear your insights. I mean, I haven't looked into the science on this, but it seems logical to me. Um, so I'd be curious to hear your insight on the role that sunshine, vitamin D, and just getting exercise outside plays as it relates to COVID. Well, I think the most important thing is to stay as healthy as possible um, and to protect yourself uh, and other people as much as possible. So, I mean, as far as sunshine and everything, you know, they were saying it's helping a little bit, but what we're seeing is such like an increase uh, of patients with COVID and people getting COVID that it's just, you know, even if sunshine and whatever is uh, beneficial, the fact that people decide not to distant themselves from others or wear masks, it totally takes that away. Yeah. 100%. It's um, not like sunshine is going to cure the COVID if you're outside of you interact with somebody, but just as a preventative measure, I guess for those of us who feel, um, who have lived our lives reasonably healthy prior to COVID and exercise and sunshine is part of our routine. Now knowing that COVID is out there, it feels like stripping away the sunshine and the exercise via forced quarantine feels like, man, that was one of my defenses that I've always employed against things like this. And now mm -hmm. I feel somewhat defenseless, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, you know, here when they shut down the ocean in San Diego, like exactly. surfing's my thing. <laughs> like that's totally. for uh, not just physical and health, it's my mental health, everything. So, I mean, that was hard, extremely hard, but had to look outside myself and uh, really check myself and be like, I'm in a situation where I have my job, stuff like that. I have my friends, they're healthy, I'm healthy. So to take a little break, it's not, it's not going to kill me here. Totally. Yeah, there's a much bigger picture. Mm -hmm. um, well, moving on past COVID, um, obviously, a lot of your public speaking and stuff relates to um, perseverance. And we'll get to all of that. But I'd be curious to hear your origin story first. Where did you grow up? When did you start surfing? All that sort of stuff. Uh, I grew up in Jersey, born and raised. No way. Yeah. So I moved out here when I was 18. Uh, I, I grew up in a little, uh, little town called Manahawkin. And I didn't surf uh, before my accident. I grew up bodyboarding, skateboarding. Uh, and I come from uh, very little means and a pretty toxic family situation back home. So I decided to move across uh, the country to really uh, distance myself from that and, uh, you know, start a new chapter. And that just ended up with me eventually in my motorcycle crash. So that was a whole new chapter. What trajectory was your life path on prior to the accident? Once you landed out in California, what were you doing for work? What were your ambitions? What did you plan for a career? Definitely not college. And <laughs> I, I was working at a restaurant as a barback and training to be a bartender and just riding my motorcycle around. I was actually gonna move up to San Francisco um, shortly after I got here. Uh, so I, I really didn't have any plans. I just wanted to, you know, get get away from 
the fighting and just the negativity that was back in Jersey. So being out here, I just wanted to, you know, be calm. How old were you at the time? 18, you said, when you moved? 18 when I moved out here, yeah. Okay, and how many, how, what year was that? 2003, beginning of 2003. Mm -hmm. Okay, and why California? I knew one person out here, so I was like, oh, well, if I get into trouble, I know one person, and I mean, it was by the ocean. I grew up by the ocean. I needed it, so I'd, I'd never been to San Diego before, and it just sounded nice, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, you certainly could have picked worse spots. Uh, <laughs> did you ride your motorcycle all the way across the country? Oh, no. Uh-uh. Oh, okay. uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, I bought it. Actually, when I came out here, it was the first time I was on an airplane ever. No so that way. Was, yeah, it was a trip. It was Unreal. a trip. Yeah, I mean, uh, the way I grew up, uh, like on welfare, low income, like I didn't have enough money to buy a surfboard, even if surfing was in the picture. So to ride on an airplane or anything like that, I didn't have funds for that. So. Danny had a passion for riding motorcycles. She was living in congested, hard to find parking downtown San Diego. So a motorcycle was practical, but it also suited her thrill seeking desire. She hadn't discovered surfing yet, so there was no need for anything more than two wheels. She was able to save enough money to buy a 97 Harley Davidson Sportster, a bike that would radically change her life in incomprehensible ways. So I was just going on a typical Sunday ride with some friends and we were going to uh, go to this place called the hideout to get some motorcycle gear and the way to get there you go through Mount Palomar and that's a mountain I just never been on before. So I didn't have anybody on the back of my bike, thank God. And uh, while we were coming back home, the, the lead bike, he just like took off. So... I was like following, but I was on a straightaway and I see this bend coming up and there was no sign for it. So I was like, ah, wide turn. It's all good. And I hit it and it was not a wide turn. It turned into like 180S turn. And at that point I was like, I had to lay down my bike, but I'm descending the mountain. So I'm on the outside and I'm like so close to just laying it down but I'm so close to the guardrail too. So I slammed my brakes. I was on a Harley, so it just popped right back up. And I was just like, fuck, this is gonna hurt. Hit the guardrail, blacked out. Uh, My friends said I went about 20, 25 feet in the air, 45 feet down. They couldn't see me anymore. Uh, It was like a 400 foot drop off, but bushes caught me. So they jumped down. And fortunately, there was a nurse that was driving behind us. So she came down. And as soon as I hit the ground, I woke up. Um, and I just, you know, I, at that point, I tried to get up. And they were just like, do not move. And I just thought it was a complete nightmare. Uh, and uh, they decided to send an ambulance out to get me because it would take too long to life flight me. And they came down the mountain, they put me onto a board to get me up. And at that point, you could hear like just all my ribs snapping and I couldn't breathe anymore. The paramedics cursing and I just uh, go out at that time. Um, Were you experiencing severe pain? I mean, I know your body has mechanisms to kind of shut some of that stuff off, but what were you 
did you know a that you would survive were you losing a lot of blood and what level of pain were you experiencing so fortunately no pain the only thing i could feel was the dirt on my face when i was laying down because i was like face down on the ground uh yeah I, my body just went into shock uh thank god for that too um and as far as losing blood when I went to the hospital. I ended up losing, let's see, 14 units of blood. So that's like all of your blood. And um, I mean, when I woke up uh, on the ground, I remember just feeling incredibly tired. And, you know, as someone who really enjoys the ocean, we've all had those like experiences where we're like, oh crap, I may drown. <laughs> like just the, that feeling that like, ah, I need to breathe or whatever. This was a million times more. It's just like, I'm dying right now. And uh, it was interesting because my vision, it went into tunnel vision. So everything sort of got like far away and dark uh, on my peripheral. And at that point, I just told them, I was like, whatever you're doing, you got to hurry. Um, that was that. Um, you're lucky to be caught by the bushes, right? I mean, 400 foot, that was, there was no chance for survival in that location, yeah. right? Yeah, so two other people crashed on that turn that week and they both died. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's now crazy. they have signs going all the way around. Right, yeah, so. totally. Um, so what was, what injuries did you sustain? Uh, so... My right tib-fib of my lower leg that was completely crushed from the guardrail. I broke all my ribs. I broke my neck at C6. I broke my left humerus, which is my upper arm. Um, I collapsed both my lungs, ruptured my spleen. Uh, let's see. I went into the operating room for 12 hours, and at that point, I coded twice. So if you read, like, my, I have all my notes from it. So when I read it, it says that my pupils were fixed and dilated twice. So technically, like, I died twice. Uh, and from that, I got mild brain damage uh, because of the lack of oxygen. And then uh, I ended up making it out of the operating room. They were trying to save my leg uh, at this time, too. So they put me in a drug-induced coma for five weeks uh, because I, wasn't, I just wasn't stable at all. So they just needed me to rest. And... Um, during that time, they were really trying to save my leg, but uh, that didn't go well. I got a massive infection in it, uh, gangrene in the knee, and I developed this thing called ARDS in your lungs. So it's acute respiratory distress syndrome. So you're drowning in your lungs pretty much. Uh, so my body was like lungs or leg. Uh, and I got like six chest tubes. I was breathing out a tube in my neck. Uh, and it eventually got to a point where my foot turned black and they decided to amputate above the knee. And once they did that, they were able to take me out of my coma. Uh, I bounced back very quickly because that was what was really holding me down. Okay. So you were, while you were in the coma, um, they made the decision to amputate. Did they consult anybody in your family or? Yeah, anything? they consulted my parents um, okay. and they gave them the go ahead to do it. Okay. Got mm -hmm. it. Um, how much do you remember from waking up and what does it feel like to wake up from a coma of 45 days? 
Oh God. Uh, I, I pretty much remember everything. Uh, and I remember my whole accident. Um, but, uh, so when I woke up, the thing about my coma too, like I could, you can hear. So when people are doing something in your room, it affects your dreams. So my dreams, and I don't typically dream and I don't remember my dreams. So I had the most vivid nightmares ever. So if they're doing something that would turn into a nightmare in my head and I just couldn't wake up from it. So like if they're decorating my room or something, or uh, if they're taking me for imaging, it was all, it was all just a shit show in my head. Uh, And then when I woke up, uh, I was on, I mean, a lot of drugs. Like I was hallucinating. It was, it was crazy. (laughs) It was super crazy. Like I was just like, I need my shoes. (laughs) Like where are my shoes? I need to go. But, uh, when I woke up, I couldn't move at all. Uh, like five weeks without moving in bed. Like I couldn't sit up. I couldn't talk cause I had that tube. Uh, I ended up getting a brachial plexus injury in my left arm. So I couldn't move or feel it from the shoulder down. Um, so I had no clue that my leg was gone. Um, I couldn't sit up and see it. I couldn't ask somebody. Um, and I was so hopped up on drugs. I was like, ah, I'll deal with that later. Cause I could still feel it. Like it was there, but it felt like it was like bent at the knee going through the bed and twisted around. I'm like, that's mm. not possible, but I'll deal with it later. Weird. Uh, yeah. Super weird. And eventually one of my friends was visiting me and I knew something was wrong. And uh, so I took his hand and I put it on my left leg and just moved it up and down. And then I just hit it to my right leg. And he ended up telling me, because like my medical team didn't want to tell me until I could talk. Um, and that absolutely destroyed me once uh, I figured that out. Um, how long until you were verbal? Mm. How long was it? Uh, probably like, uh, like a week, maybe. So you would have been in this kind of hallucinating awake phase for a week before they told you about the leg. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yep. Um, I want to hear more about the 45 days in a coma. Um, it's fascinating. I am just curious. You said that you were having memory or, um, dreams and it seems to me like if the dreams are nightmares, there's probably, you're probably experiencing a lot of fear because you're in a foreign state without being able to use a lot of your, um, senses that you normally would rely on. So it makes sense that a sound would become a nightmare, probably fear related. But I'm curious, um, how lucid were you during it? Was there brain, like, I'm curious about the level of brain functioning. Were you processing reality versus dream or, and you're trapped in the reality or what was it like? Um, well, I was definitely completely in a dream state. It was definitely dreams. Like I, I like, the shit I was seeing in my head was, can I curse on here? Yeah, of course. Yeah, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thanks for asking though. Yeah. Uh, so just the stuff that I was seeing in my dreams, like mangled bodies, like put, like it wasn't, I wasn't conscious. And when you're put into like a medically induced coma, um, they completely paralyze you um, with like, uh, what is the drugs? Like fentanyl and, um, something else just so um you're like 
I don't know, you're just in that in-between dream state and consciousness. So I did not, I definitely did not know what actually was reality. And I had no idea of time. So when I woke up, I literally thought it was the next day. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. um, on the podcast, occasionally the conversation of like hallucinogenics come up because everybody, that seems to be something that people are experimenting with nowadays. Mm -hmm. And a lot of um, what people say is like that they have a better grasp on reality in certain ways under hallucinogens and they're able to, you know, confront childhood trauma and things like that. Did you experience anything um, that was profound from the drug experience or was it all just, you know, uh, false, you know, fake, a false reality? Well, when people ask me if I had like a near death experience, um, you know, one of the dreams that I did have that I don't know if I would say it was a nightmare or whatever it was, uh, but it was just like, I was at my apartment and, but my apartment was the hospital. So I knew I was in the hospital and I was always trying to get out. Um, and then I finally got out and uh, I just started walking around my apartment. It was really late at night. And then I just started crying at that point um, because I knew I had to go back in. And at that point, like to me, what that meant to me, like I had that, decision to make like do I die or do I go back in uh so to me that was that profound moment where it's like uh you give up or you don't give up interesting mm -hmm. um I don't know how far this is jumping ahead so fill in any details if you want but um you've made radical life change obviously I would, I would presume as a result of this near-death experience and the accident itself. 100%. Um, how quickly after kind of where you're at in the hospital from when you become verbal until you actually start activating that change? Well, okay, in the hospital, once, uh, you know, once I could talk again and once I started to really know what was going on, I was placed on suicide watch because I was very angry, uh, very angry and scared. Um, Did you feel suicidal or was that their call? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Okay. Yeah. I was pissed. I was just like, you know, I didn't know any amputees at that point. I couldn't move. Um, well, at that point I could move a little bit, like whatever. I was working with PT and whatnot, but um, I was pissed. I was just like, you, I, you did not ask me. There was no, because I would not have chose this. Like, you ask my parents who, like, I have nothing to do with. Like, I, I was mad. I was super mad. So from that, though, uh, what I did notice is that, so two of my friends uh, that I have to this day who I consider my family, uh, for sure, they stayed. And they had my back. Like, I, I didn't, I wasn't on an insurance, health insurance at the oh, time. Yeah. Yeah, it was insane. It was insane. over two million dollars. No way. Yeah, dude, it was narnar. -nar. But uh, did you keep that bill? Yeah, I have all. I still have all of them. But, I would too, as a relic. I would just like to know what things cost. 
<laughs> it's insane. It's it really insane. is. Totally. <laughs> but, like one night in ICU is like $10,000. Yeah, but, totally. Uh, so my one friend, she got me on health insurance and took all that $2 million away. Uh, and they were just, they were just there for me. They gave me this like unconditional love that I'd never felt before. And they, they didn't know what was going to happen to me. You know, uh, they had no idea. I had no idea that all of this would come out of my life, you know, and I have like, Growing up, I had a history of drugs and stuff like this and stuff like that. And uh, so that was always a thought process that that might happen. Uh, and I would go back to that. But it wasn't, it wasn't a factor for them. They were there for me. Um, and so through feeling that and seeing that, I was just like, I'm going to try. Like, I have to decide. Like, I either put in 100% or I give up and to see that and feel that is like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. Do you almost feel like an obligation to them to honor kind of their investment in you? I wouldn't say an obligation, uh, just absolute gratitude. Um, and something that I feel this overwhelming like purpose to pay forward to someone else that was going through that. Um, so obligation, no, but gratitude and so what did that path look like all of it? Uh, well, like I said before, I never wanted to go to college. Uh, that was not, that was not the thought or the plan or whatever. Uh, but once I was in, I was in inpatient rehab, inpatient and outpatient rehab. So I was getting everything like physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, uh, and one of the things with, with speech therapy, like they were working on my uh, cognition because uh, of the brain injury that I had. Uh, and once I got to a point where I had everything back, we started thinking about college. And I was like, like oh, shit. But when I thought about it, uh, I was like, OK, I'm in this situation where I need really good health insurance. And also seeing physical therapy and what they do and what they did for me, like they they got my functional mobility back. They showed me how I could be independent again. And to me, seeing that, like, it, it was like, to be able to do that for someone, that's like, that's amazing. This just seems like the absolute job. Uh, so we started working on getting me into community college for not actually physical therapy, but physical therapy assistant, because okay. I was just like, I didn't even want to go to college and not going for a doctorate. <laughs> so. Right. How far out of the accident were you at the time when you enrolled in college? Uh, let's see, probably like six months. Um, it's six pretty months incredible. To a year. Yeah. Like I was, wow, I was a mess. <laughs> Dude, I couldn't even like, I couldn't even walk down the block without falling and completely out of breath. It, it was just, a joke but um what what really helped me is that my other friend uh she she ended up talking to me about going to see somebody for therapy and at the time i was like nah i was like i, I don't i don't want that like i was really depressed i was just i just wasn't there but um the way they like communicated with me they would like be like here 
if you want to do it, cool. If you don't want to do it, cool. Um, and when I thought about it more, I was just like, if I don't talk to somebody, I'm screwed for life. Like all the negative stuff that was going on in my head was just insane. And it was just on repeat over and over. Uh, so I, f I ended up finding somebody. The only person that responded to me uh, when I reached out and she was absolutely amazing. And I actually still see her um, off and on now. Um, but she like what she's, what she did to me did for me is just, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be where I am without it because, you know, it taught me, coping skills that I was never taught as a child. Um, and what I ended up seeing is that, you know, my accident and me losing a leg, that's one thing. It's like, it sucks and it was super hard, but I could see it. Like I could see my leg was gone. I could see like my physical fitness wasn't where it needed to be. Um, but I couldn't see what was going on in my head and I couldn't stop it. And um, and like what she made me realize is that through talking with her is that, you know, it all really boiled down to what I went through as a child. Like that, like my accident in general to me, uh, pales in comparison to what I had to go through like growing up. And, uh, that's something that I don't know. A lot of people don't realize they're like, oh, also amazed with what I did like with my crash, but I'm like, that ain't nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, I'm amazed by certainly that you had the resources in the friend group to help you find the help that you needed. But more importantly, that you had the emotional intelligence to know that you needed those things. I mean, I know pretty sophisticated people who still still don't see the value of talk therapy, even though their life is in shambles and they've been yeah. doing the same things wrong over and over again. So it's a pretty remarkable turnaround for you. Again, six months to kind of have, I mean, you certainly had a very significant incident happened mm -hmm. that, that kind of spawned all of that, but still to have yeah. the awareness, you came out of that incident angry and feeling oh, yeah. victimized. So you could have just continued down that path, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I was still angry and depressed and all of the things like it was, it was definitely not a smooth road. Like it was up and down all the time. And it's like, when I started college, it wasn't like full in. I like started out with like one class at a time trying right. to just like immerse myself in society again, because now society looked at me completely differently. Um, and you know, all eyes on you. And then it's like just a constant reminder of this horrible thing that happened to you. And as far as like the people that came into my life and helped me, like I, I'm, I'm extremely lucky, 100%. And I think one of the biggest things that helped is having like an open mind. And uh, what, what really helped me was learning how to accept help because I, that's something I did not want. Like I wanted to be independent, like I'm young, I'm going to do it all on my own. Like I can fix this, but you gotta, you gotta be like, nah, it, 
you take the help if someone's willing to help you. You listen to them, and if you listen to them, like they just keep directing you to the next person and the next person and the next like uh, assistance you can have to to make it. I, I'm glad you said that. I have a hard time allowing people to help me as well. Mm-hmm. It's. I mean, I still it, do. Yeah, I mean, it's. A, I guess it's. Um, there's an element of vulnerability with it, you know, and it's hard to be vulnerable. But like, even if my mom comes over and I'm cooking and she'll want to help prep and I'm like, no, 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 I got this. Cause I want her to relax, but she wants to help and she feels valued mm-hmm. by having contributed her sitting yeah. on the sofa. She'll feel useless, you know? So it's not that she just wants to help for me. It's that people, you know, they, they have, um, they feel valued by it. by contributing. Yeah. And then it's like also like bonding time with totally. you more time. Yeah. So there's so many sides to things. I want, I want to, um, I'll get back to the storyline or the timeline that we're on, but I want to side ask you uh, how you would evaluate your self-esteem, like currently. Do you, do you think you have good self-esteem? I think I have pretty good self-esteem. Uh, I mean, you know, again, nothing's ever, um, you know, a straight line. And so I have my ups and downs for sure. What good self-esteem. I think, I think what uh, gets difficult for me um, because it's been so ingrained in me is like uh, self-worth. Um, so at times uh, if something, if, I, <clears throat> if I'm going through some sort of situation, like that self-worth issue will poke its head out. Um, but ultimately you know, with therapy and being able to talk this out and having these coping skills that I have now, uh, I'm able to reason it out and uh, have it chill a bit. The reason why I ask is um, I'm trying to isolate what that variable is that allowed you to have so much success after your near-death experience. Um, Because I would imagine you're clearly intelligent, you're clearly motivated, capable. Um, you seem happy, which not a small or not an in, insignificant thing. And I would imagine those things were with you from childhood and that you had them in childhood and that you were born into a situation that had nothing to do with those things. You were that person despite those things. But when you go through life experience like that, it you can take it on as your own responsibility or that you're the reason for it and it can wear and wear away and erode self-esteem. And so um, I'm curious if like a million different people would come out of that childhood upbringing, not ever being able to resolve it and not being able to find success in other ways. So I'm wondering, I was just asking it because I'm wondering if self-esteem is that variable that if you those things, those life experiences will erode you less maybe or won't erode you? Yeah, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know because it's, it's like, I don't know. Maybe it's the way I dealt with things too as a child because I also have a sibling that things did not go good for them. Um, uh, so at times I wonder like what, what's the difference between me yeah, exactly. and what happened. Um, and the way dealt with things, I was able to um, 
really block things out and compartmentalize things and uh, like uh, disengage from people. Um, so if something bad was happen happening, I was able to be like, no, like look beyond it, don't even see it. And that served me very well uh, through this crash. Uh, and I feel like that was a big part of um, what led me to uh, everything that has happened in my life that, that is good. But then it comes to a point now where um, I've, I've reached my goals. I've done all these great things. I have no use for that block, that um, keeping people at a distance. And um, that's, that's more of something that I'm trying to work on now. Um, so it was just like a bittersweet kind of situation. And it's like growing up, I mean, I was so hungry for love and happiness that, you know, now I'm just like, I'm stoked. Like, it's just now yeah. I can feel it um, and, I, and I can compare it uh, to what has happened and I can compare it to all these really horrible feelings and it's like i'm not feeling that right now so right. i'm damn lucky for sure right. um when did surfing find its way into your life that happened four years after my accident so i got back into skateboarding right afterwards and uh that was cool what kind but, of prosthetic were you using uh it was this one called the xt9 it's it looks like a motorcycle shock okay um so, I mean, I wasn't doing the same kind of skating I was doing before, like street skating and, uh, you know, pools and stuff. I was trying to do pools again, but, you know, skateboarding again really bothered me because since I, I grew up doing it, it used to be so easy. And then doing it after my crash, it was just a whole new ball game. Like I was the only female above me maybe even only the only male or female that was doing it. So it was, it's just incredibly hard. So that hurt me that like hurt my heart. Um, so I got to this point that I was just like, okay, I have, I have my endurance and everything that I'm, I'm just missing the ocean. Like the ocean is my home. I need to get back into it. That's going to help me clear my head, all this good stuff. So I went to try to bodyboard again, and that wasn't working out very well because I had hurt my ankle so many times skateboarding that uh, it just wasn't a good situation. It was too painful. So my friends were surfers. Uh, well, they are surfers, and I, uh, I was with them all the time, and they're like, oh, try surfing. And I'm like, well, there's no leg to do that with because this is, what, 16 years ago? And, uh, you know, my leg people, they're like, don't you dare take your leg into the water because uh, that's like the only one you're getting. And health insurance doesn't cover sports equipment. So what was it made I, out of? Uh, so my first leg was uh, just some sort of metal. It wasn't titanium, though. And it was like complete straight up mechanical knee. So if I took that in, it would completely rust out. And that was like the only thing I was walking in. So. Um, my leg guy at the time, uh, I was just like, Oh, like I need a leg to walk into the water with and surf or whatever. So we started working on something. I took all my old parts cause I keep all my old parts and we, I mean, it took a while cause we kept 
putting things together and I kept breaking it. Uh, and then finally I was just like, lock it out, like lock out the knee, just cast it up. Like I just need something to hold me. <laughs> so, uh, once that happened, it was done. Like it, it, I could pop up easily. Like I had board, I had like board knowledge from skateboarding and like wave knowledge from bodyboarding. So it came pretty, pretty easily. I mean, I mean, it's not easy. I kept falling. But like, it's not uh, easy for people who have two legs, you know, like it yeah. takes forever to learn how to surf. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess in the scope of things, uh, like comparing it to like, I don't know, in the scope of things, it wasn't horrible, like too hard for me. Was there a community um, that you could rely on for, I don't know, information or anything? No, there wasn't any above knee surfers at the time and there was like there was some below knee amputee surfers like in the world but uh i didn't see him but there was this one guy um that even before i made the leg uh i met him so i was doing a lot with the military at this point because this is when the war was like in full swing okay. and at balboa they were getting a lot of amputees back like they had a hundred um on base that they were trying to rehab so one of the organizations, uh, Challenge Athletes Foundation, uh, they taught me how to run, bike, and swim again. So they asked me to go to Balboa and teach their physical therapists how to train their amputees to do this. Through that, I met somebody, uh, Betty McCallowicz, who's an exercise physiologist who was doing a surf clinic for military, uh, wounded military. And she's like, oh, come to the surf clinic. And I was like, okay, cool. And I, uh, she had some, some guy from Brazil come out. And his name's Parada. And he was out in the water. And I see him pop up. And he's an above-knee amputee with a leg on. And he's surfing. And I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, sold. <laughs> like, wow. um, and his leg was narnar. His leg was like, you know, complete Home Depot uh, bungee. Really? bungee cords i'm like dude what are you doing oh my gosh uh we're 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 good friends now and i think he still has like he does the same thing with that leg too i'm like you're crazy but amazing yeah. due to that early introduction to the surf clinic for wounded military service people danny recognized the unique therapy that the ocean provides and the inherent benefit embedded in the challenge and fun of surfing since then, she has logged over 300 hours of adaptive surf instruction at the Challenged Athletes Foundation and the Balboa Navy Medical Center. But at the time, Danny was only planning on doing an undergraduate degree and being a physical therapy assistant. She started to recognize that she had larger aspirations that were only really limited by a previously misconceived sense of self, one that she had already far surpassed. Okay. And then my friend at the time was like, why don't you go for physical therapy? And I was like, because this is a doctorate and I didn't even want to go to college. And then, but when I thought about it, I didn't have a good enough excuse. Um, so I was like, fine. And <laughs> like, then uh, I started going through the motions to like transfer to um, a university. And uh, I was just, yeah, doing all my undergrad stuff at that point. So um, they were just having me come over just as a, um, just as a amputee that could do all these things. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, as it relates to surfing, obviously the leg is 
the biggest challenge in finding a leg that can work in the way that you needed to do in the ocean in the ocean and for surfing. What about other products? I mean, what about gear, wetsuits, surfboards? Were there limitations in regard to that stuff? I mean, I would cut my wetsuit. So I was just like, okay. screw it. I'm just going to cut it. And uh, um, because I, I noticed the drag on that side, it would definitely affect me with surfing and it was too much. So I ended up cutting that. And then, but with the wetsuit in general, wetsuits typically only last me like, oh God, I can rip a wetsuit on the first session because my socket, because my socket that my legs attached to, it goes all the way up to like my butt. So it's hard, it's carbon fiber. So that like rubbing with my board, it just destroys it. But um, I linked up with seven till eight uh, recently and they made me some wetsuits. Um, so they put uh, like the knee pad material on the whole thigh. So that that's like perfect. But that didn't happen till just recently. But before that, I just went through wetsuits like no tomorrow. Does that solve the problem? Oh yeah. Okay, totally. cool. And for mm -hmm. listeners who don't know, they do custom tailored wetsuits, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, they're rad. That's their benefit for the market is that you can buy something that fits you custom. Yeah. And I mean, for adaptive surfers in general, it's a good idea because wetsuits are uh, a hard situation, especially if you're like spinal cord injured patient uh, or person. Uh, so like zippers or straps or whatever. And in my case, just having like um, a really good uh, like patch on the thigh really helped. And I mean, in general with surfing, if you're an above knee amputee, many people choose not even to wear a leg because it's just hard. And uh, yeah, I've seen yeah. that. So what is your stance? Are you fully upright? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm regular. Okay. Uh -huh. So fully upright as you would see any other regular footed surfer standing. Yeah. Are there, are there limitations um, in to what you can do? And what? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. What are yeah, the limitations? So, um, so if you, if you look at my leg, my surf leg, it's pretty much just like a modified peg leg, but it's in an athletic stance. So I have, the knee area uh, flexed a little bit and then the ankle part flexed up a little bit. So I'm in like a mini squat. Um, but with that, you know, since it's static, I can't, I can't move up and down. I can't get lower unless like I grab my rail and really move my front foot forward. Um, so, and I have no ankle movement. Uh, so for me, it's definitely, it depends on what's going on in the water, but like if it's big and steep, I'm going to definitely want to go backside because I can just stick my butt out and get that rail easier. If I go front side, it's way harder because it's like, I could just, I just fall yeah. forward. because There's nothing there. Right. Um, and I mean, and then the shorter I go uh, with boards is an issue too, because uh, if my foot is off the back, like my uh, fake foot, then when I go to pop up, it tends to like snag on the back and I can't like get it up. So I lose that, lose that second that I need. Um, gotcha. But overall, I mean, I can't really complain. Um, tell me about the uh, World Adaptive Surfing involvement with them. When did you get involved with them? Uh, so let's see. It's been going on for probably six years now. And that's when I was just getting out of 
uh, my doctorate program. So I was just like, they invited me to the first one. So I was like, oh, why not? Um, that sounds cool. Because the last time I did a competition was like before I ended up going to grad school. Um, and I had a blast. It was sort of like, it was weird. It wasn't really organized at all, but it was the first one. So it's like, whatever. And then the coolest thing is that I got to be with my community. So it's just like all adaptive surfers. Like we didn't talk about uh, like what happened to us or why we are adaptive now. It's just like talk about surf. So it, it was very like humanizing, I guess, because typically the conversation now uh, when I'm surfing with a bunch of able-bodied people is like, what happened to you? And all this kind right. of stuff. Uh, but it was definitely an amazing feeling. Uh, and then, you know, as things moved on, I always competed against men because there was no females at the time doing it. I mean, there's only like five above knee amputees that surf in the world competitively and they're guys uh, besides me. Um, so that was for a while, but as women started to come in more, then they started to have a uh, uh, female division. But that was a whole mess in the beginning because points and stuff like that. But yeah, when you <laughs> that's first, another conversation. When you first um, competed with them, how many total competitors were there? Um, I think there was like 32 countries oh or 24. Gosh. No, 24 countries, I think. And uh, about, I don't know, maybe like 100 competitors. That's a lot. Something like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, where, yeah. where was the event? It was, it's always been at La Jolla Shores. So oh, that's okay. been difficult. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely cool to see everybody. And because it was like, I talked to a lot of these uh, people like through internet and we always shared ideas about equipment and whatever. So to actually hang with them in person was really cool. And that's yeah. like in my backyard. So that was totally, nice. I mean, competition, regardless of who wins the competition, it's just a great opportunity to hang out. Yeah. 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 Um, I asked you through the email when I was kind of discussing the outline, I asked you about the surf industry but it's almost a moot point because what, like, what is the surf industry at this point? The, the original question was about representation and um, what ethnicity are you, by the way? Uh, I'm half Korean. Half Korean. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it was about the surf industry basically is um, white males essentially, you know, and a, a small percentage white female. So the question was about representation and people of color and LBGTQ and what ways can the industry, where have the missteps been? And also what ways could um, they rectify that? But again, magazines aren't even to blame anymore because they're kind of defunct. The big mm -hmm. brands are almost defunct or any of the big four big brands that are now traded publicly have all filed for bankruptcy. So it almost feels... Like, I'm not sure who to even rely on as arbiters of our sport. Like maybe mm -hmm. you and I are part of the industry now, you know what I mean? Totally. Uh, because, we, because you have an Instagram following or something. But what are, your, <laughs> what are your thoughts on all of that stuff? Did you grow up looking at surfing and following 
the magazines or the brands and oh totally like okay. I would like walk to the library I'm like dating myself now but uh, I would walk to the library and flip through surfer and bodyboarding and I'm you know just looking for anybody that looks like me remotely like brown woman anything uh, but there was never anything to see uh, so that was definitely difficult um, I just you know, you just feel like you don't belong in okay. general. Um, and I think as far as the conversation with like, uh, you know, having more visibility and uh, what we should do is such like a broad uh, topic. And uh, we have such like short time to talk about it. But like what I feel in general that would be beneficial for us is just, you know, we take a look at our own Instagram feed um, as a business like WSL, like take a look at who's in leadership, um, you know, get your employees in a room and, you know, you automatically see the issue. It's like, uh, you know, visibility. I think that's like, that's baseline. Like that, that should be a given um, that that's what should happen. But I, you know, I feel if we don't change who's in the room, who's making decisions and like really look at that and include diversity, then nothing's really going to change because you have one lens that you're looking through. Um, so yeah, I feel, I feel there's a lot of opportunity to really stand up and uh, really, uh, you know, be a stand for equality because just to like you know with everything that's going on just to like jump in and start posting like stuff about like people of color or like lgbtq or whatever you know it, it's it's like come on it's like that's that's part of it but now it's time to take a deeper look yeah so when i said the surf industry is mainly white males um that is the industry specifically like who's working in that space is generally white males but and that's who they're representing through a lot of the media and the brands would represent too but really surfing is global and there's surfers of every color in every country doing it male and female and so when i said that the brands have all been bankrupt since going public i think that that's the exact reason the lack of diversity is the exact reason is because they're only representing this fraction of their actual user base. And so once they make the leap from just being a $20 million company that caters to people who live on the coastline, they make a leap to middle America and middle everywhere else where there is a lot more diverse consumer base, mm. but all of the branding is this kind of very narrow image of what this thing can be, it becomes a lot harder for the user base to identify and connect with it. It's just less, it's, it's less relevant at that totally. point. And so I do think that has been the misstep for all of those companies that came before and media organizations. And moving forward, they're still not even acknowledging that, but this kind of grassroots level, yourself included, who, are fully aware of it and are just reflecting their own life experience because there isn't, you know, a boardroom helping them make decisions or anything like that. 
-hmm. is able to connect with a vast number of people in a really quick, short span of time. And the big brands are sitting around going, what? They're like, where did we lose market share? And they lost it, you know, all totally. along the way. Totally. Totally yeah. agree. It, yeah. It's just, it, it would benefit everybody. Like it's good for business. business. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, if for nothing else, it's yeah. good for business, you know, Uh huh. totally. And like, even, you know, even with the women's stuff, like the equal pay and stuff like that, thankfully that went through and everything, but there's still like disparities with that too. Like as far as like, you know, uh, women being able to compete in all the competitions. It's just like, it's these like interesting loopholes that um, it, ju it just makes you wonder why, like why, what's the issue? I, I, it's, it's interesting. I think a lot, a lot of it is laziness. It's easy just to keep doing things the way that they've always been done. But if you really looked at it under a brand new lens, I think the female world tour is more marketable than the male world tour is. There's mm -hmm. a lot more appeal into a lot broader brands than yeah. the men appeal to. Um, so they could get advertising dollars from anybody if they marketed mm -hmm. the female tour, you know, differently. Yeah. Uh, but they're doing it through kind of the male lens. It's like, what's the gnarliest turn that Felipe Toledo can do? And that is the way that we view and judge surfing. So hold yourself to that standard. And then we'll figure mm -hmm. out advertising based on that. But if you view what Stephanie Gilmore is doing, it's equally as appealing, if not more marketable than what Felipe is doing. You just mm -hmm. have to kind of look at it through a different lens. Yeah. And then it's like, it's like an equity thing. It's like, you know, we've always brought up men to this level and yeah. funded them and gave them that opportunity and held down women. So in order to close that gap, something needs to happen. And if something happens, then if that's what you want to see, that's what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it yeah. almost, it almost feels like this is the reset. Like with COVID, the WSL has probably lost all of, if not most, if not all, most of their funding for 2020 mm -hmm. Who knows what that looks like for them for 2021 moving forward. They're going to have to rethink the entire business model and it could be an opportunity for growth, you know, and for evolution. Totally. I mean, that definitely is the good thing that's coming out of this is that everybody is paying attention and they have no other option than to pay attention because we're all on our phones and everything. Uh, and so a lot of, things that have needed to change and needed to be looked at is now being looked at. So I, I'm definitely thankful to see that for sure. Yeah, me too. After her 45 day coma, Danny rehabbed at Sharp Memorial Hospital. As she went through college and graduate school, she needed field work hours. So she applied for an internship at Sharp. After graduating in 2015, she took a full-time position at that exact same hospital, Sharp Memorial, as a doctor of physical therapy. They, they can't get rid of me. <laughs> so, patient, student, employee. Um, I mean, 
yeah, I don't know. And I, I, a lot of my coworkers are the same therapist that I had as a patient. So, I mean, that's to work with them uh, and alongside of them. It's, it's such an honor um, to now really, really pay forward what they did for me. Do you have any limitations, kind of uh, benefits as a phys physical therapist? Physical therapist. Do you have any special advantage or limitations mm. like for uh, your clients? No, typically uh, they don't know that I'm an amputee unless I tell them because I'm wearing scrubs. So I'm wearing pants the whole time. Um, so it's never been a th an issue. And it's like I, I've built up my strength from like surfing and everything. So that um, has definitely helped me with my job because I completely – I can, I'll, I'll be with patients from all different spectrums. So like people that are like walkie talkie that are fine, they're independent to people that, you know, I completely have to lift them. Um, and fortunately it's never been an issue, never got hurt, um, never fallen or anything like that. So, uh, it's all been good. Good. Um, perfect segue to talk about fitness. What is your fitness regime? I surf. <laughs> is that like, it? I surf for like four hours. Uh, no, I, I definitely, I'm a big proponent to stretching. I don't, I wouldn't say I'm not, I, I would like to get more into yoga, but in general, I just stretch a lot. Um, and besides that, like I haven't been competing a lot, so I'm not really doing the cross training thing. I need to do that before I was doing that. So like just weightlifting and having a personal trainer. Uh, what's your diet like? My diet, I, I don't eat a lot of meat, but I'll, I'll pretty much eat anything in moderation. But yeah, uh, nutrition is number one for sure. And I'm a creature of habit. So I eat the same things all the time, like oatmeal in the morning with fruit, salads, stuff like that. Do you avoid uh, alcohol, sugar, dairy? Sugar, yes. Uh, not necessarily. I, I'm not like on it all the time. Like I, I'm not like, uh, you know, actively thinking about it all the time. I just avoid it in general. It's just something that doesn't really interest me. Alcohol, yeah, I don't drink that much um, just because I'm – I'm not really interested in doing it. Like if I'm with friends, yeah, sure. Uh, and then what was the other thing? Dairy. Dairy. Yeah, I don't drink a lot of dairy. Like I'll have like almond milk. I do like cheese. I know cheese is something I've started to cut out like in the last five years, like phase out of my life mm -hmm. just because I don't feel great from it, mm -hmm. you know? Totally. Um, but can't avoid, like I still eat pizza once a week. Yeah. I'm not going to avoid it in certain ways like that, but I'm not bringing wedges of cheese home from the store anymore. Totally. Because it's like inflammatory, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And like with me, like, so that kind of stuff I do have to think about a little bit as far as like, so if I drink a bunch of beer or something the night before, my, my leg is not going to fit right. Cause you know, I, I'm very, my volume is very sensitive. So anything that will make me swell, uh, like any kind of salt and it's very like, since it's like custom built to me, it's very, um, easy to mess up that fit. Yeah. So even in a couple beers the night before 
will affect the way I'm walking. It can cause a sore, anything like that. So that's yeah. something that I do have to think about. That'll keep you in basis. check. Mm-hmm. Um, final question for everybody is just, what was the last surfboard that you rode? Uh, today I rode a 7.4 uh, Pintail Mini by Bing. Awesome. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, quad setup. It's, yeah, it's my favorite model. I have three of them. I have like a 7.10, a 7.4, and a 6.6. I can't wow. get enough of it. So what's your relationship with Bing? Uh, so I guess I'm a, a team writer, a team writer slash ambassador. Uh, they're good friends, and uh, they've always supported me, um, especially through competition and everything. And, um, you know, especially in the beginning, me coming up to them, and I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, I do these adaptive competitions. Like, they're like, who are you? But... I mean, Margaret Calvani and Matt Calvani, they're, they're gold. They are yeah. amazing people. And they're like, you know, cool. Uh, we'll do this. We'll, we'll sponsor you. So they've always been there. Yeah, we've had both Matt and uh, Bing Copeland himself on the podcast over the last few years. Oh, that's rad. Yeah, yeah they're super, super cool. Great, yeah. great brand. And I mean, um, Joe Roper, he's always been a huge supporter too. And he fixes it. Like I ding the crap out of my board all the time because of my leg. And he's number one, always there for me. And uh, yeah, he's, he's great. Him and Jojo. I was going to ask you, um, are there any special modifications to the surfboard itself? Uh, well, on this last board that I got, I had um, them re- reinforce the rails. Uh, but that's the first time that I did that. So as far, I've gotten better with uh, not dinging my board with my leg, but it still happens. So I also wrap um, my leg with pipe insulation and electrical tape. So that helps cushion it a little bit. But yeah, Joe Rober, he's the one who was always like, let me reinforce your rails. <laughs> I'm like, okay, dude. Are they reinforced with carbon or just more fiberglass? Yeah, just fiberglass. Okay. And where, why do the rails get bumped? Is it from the leg just hitting it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. Right away. Like, even just like, uh, I don't really know. I don't know what happens. Like, me hitting it from popping up or like from changing positions. Like, it's just like, there's a lot of like corners and stuff on my prosthetic. So that, that um, is a recipe for disaster for sure got it fascinating awesome well thank you for taking so much time oh yeah thanks for having me on it was fun thrilled to yeah i really appreciate it photos and video of Danny not only surfing but also of some of her work on surfsplendorpodcast.com. I've also linked over to her website and her socials there. 
really impressive story and um, somebody that I had been following on social media and that I had seen in recent years, um, but listeners actually clued me in and pushed for this interview to happen. So always appreciate that feedback from listeners. Um, This show really has been guided by listener feedback since day one. I feel like like our vast and diverse surfing audience knows far more about a myriad of things than I do. And so it's kind of great to get their gentle nudging and then for me to kind of do a deep dive and learn about various things over the years. So thanks for that. You can always send feedback on the website. There's a comment section on every single um, podcast page of the website. So you can leave your feedback there for a specific episode, or you can always email hello at surfsplendorpodcast.com. Of course, you can also rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen in. That helps for strangers to find it. And the way that we stay in business and have the ability to continue this work is both through listener donations, which is dependable, recurring monthly support, but also through brand partnerships like we have now with Rain Optics and Eyewear. We're thrilled to partner with Rain. We're very discerning about brands that we choose to partner with. And Rain is such a good fit. We all need eyewear, whether they're prescription or sunglasses. And so the opportunity to work with a company like Rain that was founded in surfing, it's family run, but they're also focused on the highest quality at a very fair price. And of course, have this kind of fashion forward design aesthetic makes it just a great fit. So Rain is spelled R-A-E-N. And of course, our promo code is the word podcast that saves you 20% off any purchase. But equally as important is that uh, it lets them know that you heard about them here. So they'll continue to support our work. So whenever you need to re-up on eyewear, that's a great way to look great, feel good about the product, and uh, support our work. Rain.com, R-A-E-N, promo code podcast. Thanks to the Hype Brothers, and thank you to you, the listener, for all of your support always. Check out our YouTube channel. That's been a huge project. Um, Just search Surf Splendor. We're posting everything. These Surf Splendor episodes we're posting there. We are filming The Grit and Spit and also incorporating all of the surf footage and um, screenshots, everything. Whatever we're discussing, we are then posting along with visuals of us debating and talking. All of it's on YouTube in one visual package. So I hope that you enjoy that. The comment section is great there too to engage with other listeners and hear their thoughts in real time. So check that out and I'll be back on Friday for The Grit with Chess Smith, which we will be filming and posting on YouTube. And then we published an episode of Spit yesterday with Scott Bass. And then, of course, next Tuesday, once again, full steam ahead here at Surf Splendor. So thanks for all your support. We appreciate it. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. And I would encourage you, if they're swell, if you're outside of, if you're anywhere other than Southern California, hopefully you're getting waves. And uh, I'd encourage you to get back into the water, share some waves, and shred one.